This is the Ellis Martin Report. When you hear us mention companies doing any kind of business, there's a large probability, if not a certainty, that the Ellis Martin Report is compensated for that mention. And now, here's Ellis Martin. I'm Ellis Martin. Join me now for a conversation with Timothy Coe, the CEO of Entheon Biomedical, trading in the U.S. as ENTBF and in Canada on the CSE as ENBI. Entheon Biomedical is pioneering a leading-edge addiction recovery solution that harnesses and optimizes the therapeutic potential of the DMT molecule. Entheon exists to invert the addiction recovery ratio, turning the untreatable case and lost cause from the norm to the exception. The company is committed to the legal development of regulated, safe, and effective therapies, and in educating the public and medical profession as to the efficacy of psychedelic protocols when clinically administered in the optimum set and setting. Tim, welcome to the program. Thanks so much for joining me today. Please be here, Ellis. The subject matter that we're going to talk about today, dimethyltryptamine, DMT otherwise, is a subject that we have never discussed on this program, and I know nothing about it physically because I've never taken it, but I'm very interested in the fact that it's referred to often as a spirit molecule. And Terrence McKenna was a propagator of this a long time ago and has been for many years. So we certainly want to discuss him today. And your company is involved in the clinical application of this to treat patients with serious mental issues like anxiety, depression, a whole host of issues. And this is also an opportunity for our listeners to get involved if that is their choice as a shareholder of this company, and we have to explain during the course of this interview how we get there. Let's start with DMT itself. I'll let you explain what it is. We exist in interesting times, to say the least. Yeah, as you mentioned, DMT, also known as dimethyltryptamine, often referred to as the spirit molecule or the god molecule. It is a very powerful psychoactive psychedelic substance. So more commonly found in things like ayahuasca. I don't know if your listeners know what that is, but it is a bit of a sort of experiential trend that's been taking place for the better part of a decade or two now. A lot of Westerners going to the jungles of Peru and the Amazon, but also within the U.S. to experience, you know, the God molecule. And I guess the really important thing from that is that what the applications are for. A lot of people go to, you know, the jungles of the Amazon to experience ayahuasca from the perspective of wanting to gain insights into their lives. Often, sometimes characterized as people that with have diseases of despair or spiritual sicknesses, whether that's an existential sense of of loss or confusion or depression or wanting to work through some fundamentally important personal issue. People will go to the Amazon, sit in a tent with a shaman and ingest a brew that contains dimethyltryptamine, among other things. It's sort of an organic brew that contains DMT as well as something called MAOI that prolongs the effect of DMT. And essentially what takes place is a very powerful psychedelic experience where the recipient will have all sorts of visions and experiences and in many cases, really reference and explore the deep recesses of their memory, their attachments, their familial history, their traumas. And in doing so and exploring that stuff, they're able to reformat and recontextualize how they feel about those things. So a lot of people go into those experiences with a lot of inner turmoil, but leave with some clarity and certainty. And so dimethyltryptamine is the active psychoactive component of that brew. And so what we're doing is taking dimethyltryptamine and pulling 
taking it out of that anecdotally verified cultural context and putting it into a form factor that individuals in the Western world can have the safety and assurance of it being a regulated safe product so that they too can work through the fundamentally important issues that constitute their experience and hopefully reform whatever things are weighing them down. And for us, one of our target indications is substance use disorder. And, you know, there's an understanding that what underpins substance use disorder isn't necessarily just a chemical reaction, but really underneath all that, that within the individual that suffers, there are things like trauma and attachment issues, family issues, as well as self-perception issues that really do serve as the foundation for negative behaviors to take place from. People will self-soothe and try to calm themselves or lower their distress by using substances. But with something like DMT, we believe that that person can dramatically reconstitute who they are, what they believe themselves to be, and then from there, how they feel so they won't need to seek substances. In your opinion and that of others, DMT is a potential solution for the causes that lead to substance abuse and actual substance abuse. What sort of research has been done in this regard to prove out your point? The research is mounting and building every day, but a really convenient one that uh, took place recently. So there's a psilocybin study done out of Johns Hopkins that worked on nicotine addiction. And for the first time, psilocybin was used on people that suffer from nicotine use disorder. And the success rate for that was phenomenal. It was like nothing seen before. I think it was in the 60 to 70% range of efficacy. And if we understand what the traditional success rates for other interventions are for smoking, we know that that's head and shoulders above what previously exists. And yeah, there's a lot of research coming out about the sort of mechanisms within the brain that actually dictate sort of what controls addictive behavior. There's a sort of a believed network called the default mode network that really does dictate what traditionally most people feel think and how they react to things on a day-to-day basis. For a lot of people that aren't afflicted by difficult substance use disorder or mental health issues, that regular patterning of thought can focus around really simple things like upon waking up, how do you feel? What are you excited about? What are you not excited about? And like how much stress and anxiety do you feel about that? For most people, we do operate on autopilot a lot of the time. And for listeners, I invite them to really think about on a day-to-day basis, are they actively thinking? or is that governed by a sort of mental muscle memory? So for most people, that's not really detrimental. But for people that suffer from substance use disorder, that default mode network, that default programming really does put them at a disadvantage. Upon waking up, they might feel like their prospects are very low, like their outlook on life is very pessimistic and that they might have shame around themselves, things that might cause them distress. And in response to that distress, make them seek out something that makes them feel better. And we know that psychedelics like psilocybin and DMT can elicit a dysregulation of the default mode network and create from a brain imaging perspective, the recruitment of dormant areas so that that default programming that dictates behavior and belief is disrupted to the extent by a process called entropy of allowing someone to recruit different brain areas and so that they could have new experiences around old stimulus, old traumas, old memories. So from a brain imaging perspective, it 
it is quite apparent that molecules like DMT can really elicit that reconfiguration, if not permanently, temporarily. So opening up a window of opportunity that that person can really have dramatically new experiences that do have a long-standing sort of trail-on benefit. I don't mind saying that almost every morning, and I have a way of dealing with it, that is probably 60 to 70% effective, or I'd be ineffective in my life as a businessman and a journalist. But every morning, there's usually something negative in the brain that I have to dispel. It's like every morning is a Monday almost during the week where, oh my God, I've got to do this, I've got to do that. And then all these negative Tourette's-like thoughts come into your head, which I have to dismiss. Logically, I know that won't serve me, so it goes away. I understand through transcendental meditation, other forms of meditation, you have to learn how to push those thoughts away or deflect them like Tai Chi somehow. And eventually you retrain your brain for them to go away. I've done none of those things. I don't have a substance abuse problem because logically it doesn't make sense to me. I feel ill after drinking. You don't know what you're smoking when you're doing marijuana. And for that matter, I've been offered DMT and ayahuasca in the past at my age of 65. I'm too scared to do something unregulated that may, in my mind, kill me, but probably won't. Yeah, for sure. No, I think that's a very common fear, right? Like for all the proposed benefits of these things, if you don't know what you're getting and you don't know what the potential side effects are and you don't know from a regulated, validated perspective what the long-term consequences might be, I think a lot of people would be reasonably afraid to do some of these things. And so that's what we're trying to do is pull that into a regulated context so that we do need to go through all the very rigorous empirical steps of gathering the data, proving hypotheses and presenting the data in such a way that from a regulator's perspective, they say, yes, empirically, that is safe and effective for the target indication. I had an occasion to go to Hawaii. In fact, I moved there in the late 70s and three of us from New Mexico took peyote with us and it was crumbled up into capsule form. We did that ourselves. And from the one experience that I have, one and only in my entire life, I had experienced psilocybin in the past. I didn't receive any clarity from that. But the one time I did ingest peyote, which is used by a lot of Native Americans in the past, I had moments of clarity that absolutely changed my life. And I understand because I've listened to Joe Rogan a lot. I've, I've done a lot of research online. I understand that this is quite possible, although unbelievable if you're listening and not exposed to this, quite possible that you can have clarity that can affect your life from just one experience. So I'd like your comment on that. And then a, another question would be, do you need to repeat this? How is it regulated? What is the process? And what are you doing in your clinical trials? That's a lot right there, but I'll let you address it. It's a big topic and it requires quite a bit of explanation. But that idea of the one instance or the one and done approach is an actual reality. And it's great to hear that I assume that you didn't partake in this experience in a highly structured therapeutic environment and still it elicited a newfound clarity, right? So it is possible for people to using the material of their own mind and their own experience to have these radically different perceptions and come to this breakthrough clarity from a single dose. But for us, what we want to do is ensure that the opportunity and the potential for that transformative experience is maximized by ensuring that it is put within a therapeutic context. So if you had that experience in a totally unguided way, just imagine how much more efficacy or how much more certainty of that arriving would be sort of expected if you were to really engage in a therapeutic process where you, in a very thoughtful way, engage with the therapist and really poured over the events of your life, established context as well as intent. With that added element of sort of dealing with the therapist in preparation for the psychedelic experience, you can opt optimize or increase the potential for benefit. So knowing 
like if you go into a psychedelic experience saying, hey, these are some of the core issues that I deal with. I have these things weighing me down. These things are preventing me from being happy. These relationships that are very difficult for me to deal with and cause me a disproportionate amount of difficulty. Understanding those things and having them sort of in the hopper so that when you have that psychedelic experience, you're very materially working with those things. We want to ensure that the preparation is very safe. It provides a maximum potential for effect by properly contextualizing the issues that are going to be worked on. Then the psychedelic event takes place. And during that psychedelic experience, like you experienced, you will have all sorts of visions and memories that you thought you'd forgotten about or suppressed. And then following that, those realizations, like sometimes the significance of them exists in such a way that they become permanent. But a way to, again, increase the potential for transformational change is to following the psychedelic event, integrate those experiences and those realizations so that, you know, you can refer back to the initial context and intent and incorporate these realizations and epiphanies into a evolving worldview. And so, um, yeah, that is the intent. The intent is to maybe have a longer patient journey, but in that longer journey, there's an opportunity to increase the potential for positive impact. And yeah, really try to aim at having a one and done type of model. The one and done did work on many levels for quite some time, but it certainly didn't cushion me for for what remained during the course of my life, the gestalt that an artist has. I mean, I'm an artist and I'm a businessman. They occupy different parts of my brain. The artist is, is never content and struggles, but uses that creative energy to perform in business. And if there was some regulation in that and the demons were gone because we're our own worst demons, the negative voices in our head that would drive us to addiction. I drank when I was younger, probably too much. I'm not addicted to it, but it was there. And, you know, it kept me from thinking about the things that were bugging me since I was probably born. The same thing with marijuana, which I believe today is can be useful occasionally, perhaps to regulate back pain and that sort of things. But it just shut me down. It didn't open up new avenues for me. But the one time I did do the peyote, I had visionary experiences. I saw my father's death two days before it happened. I saw UFOs flying in and out of the ocean. And I wasn't the only one. All of us did. That's part of the God molecule that we're still trying to understand. And I was fearless when I was in my early 20s. Absolutely fearless. I would do it again if I was 20 years old right now. But I'm not about to. And I'd like to know if I'm going to engage with a psychotherapist. That person's going to remain my therapist during the course of the trial and after. And what is the pool of psychotherapists, to your knowledge, that have the training in this arena and not just the shaman? I mean, some of our listeners will go to Peru or wherever and do ayahuasca. That's not me. I want to stay put. What can we hope for in this new world? We are entering a really interesting time where we're trying to merge this, this traditionally very mystical experience with a empirical model for wellness, right? We're trying to not just take in the world of the, though there's a ton of validity to the world of the shamanistic and the culturally passed down, there are specific psychotherapeutic measures that constitute the preparation program, right? Whether that's cognitive behavioral therapy, motivational enhancement therapy, as well as just traditional psychotherapies. The toolkit that is necessary for properly preparing someone for psychedelic therapy, that's part of the work that we're doing, structuring in such a way that that is transportable and recreatable. That being said, there is going to be uh, require some specialized expertise in terms of preparing a patient for something that cannot easily be characterized in words, right? If I were to ask you what the psychedelic experience is, you could probably spend the next decade of your life trying to write a book of poetry about it, right? So there are specific considerations to what can be expected within psychedelic, but realistically, the preparation is a utilization of 
of already existing toolkits. It doesn't all have to be couched in mysticism. A lot of what is therapeutic and useful already exists in terms of cognitive behavioral therapy and psychotherapeutic approaches. And really the important thing is establishing that patient trust, ensuring that that patient is willing and capable of accessing things that might be difficult to access. I mean, I'm sure when you access memory of your father or thought about those things, those are purposefully or subconsciously subdued for a reason. And the things that, you know, are maybe most important for us to experience and to explore are sometimes our blockage points, right? So preparing someone to expect that, yeah, the journey might be difficult, but getting them, I guess, inoculated to the idea that, hey, though it's difficult, you will be better for it. And in exploring the shadowy recesses of where your mind may not have allowed you to go, you're doing the brave work of becoming a reconciled person. So yeah, the therapeutic component is super important, but we are developing those toolkits so that wherever you are, this is a recreatable model. Could this become a very common therapy in the future? Do you see that? Psychedelics in and of themselves are, to our understanding, very safe. And like I was saying, the therapeutic approaches to preparing someone for these experiences are already borrowing from an existing toolkit. Of course, be custom tailored to the psychedelic experience, but we see this as being not just novel and eating up a small amount of market share. If we look at the efficacy rates of some of the conventionally available treatments that exist for substance use disorder and the price point attached to some of those things, not only is there a huge need but there's a huge opportunity. With residential treatment centers, the price points can range anywhere from five to $30,000 per stay. And the efficacy rates can be as low as five to 10% at a six month endpoint following experience. So not to get into too much detail about my why, but I lost my brother to addiction in March of 2019. And that was an experience that was really informative, right? Over the course of about two decades, my brother was into and out of, could be eight, nine or 10 different drug treatment centers each time costing anywhere from five to $30,000. There might be some positive effect for about two or three months after, but inevitably, because nothing fundamentally transformative took place, he would descend back into the lifestyle and essentially start at square one again. And so knowing that, that even with the best that money could provide for people that suffer, the efficacy rates are so predictably low. You know, there's a huge need. And we do think that with psychedelics, there is this really important function of psychedelics that traditional therapy tries to get at. Traditional drug treatment really does try to peel back the layers of the onion so that the person could better understand what their motivations, their blockages are. But due to the nature of addiction and sometimes trauma, it's really difficult for people to access that. Psychedelics do have the potential to radically access that stuff and allow for that person like you experienced, like I experienced, to have these really transformational experiences like that maybe we couldn't even will ourselves into. Psychedelics do seem to deliver that where a person can really access that stuff in a radical way that might be difficult to approach, you know, using other conventions. What I recall about my particular experience, granted peyote is probably very different from ayahuasca or DMT, is that my life became more intuitive. I trusted the subconscious and the superconscious to lead me and it hasn't led me wrong as long as you pay attention. And these are things we don't understand as a culture. 
culture. Our Western culture doesn't process these things, and I think these are things that over time you will be able to perhaps put into a clinical setting and give some validity to other than the patchouli-wearing mumbo-jumbo folks we might run into at the beach that we wouldn't do business with, but you know we might wave to and, and talk about uh, our experience with them in the conga line at some point. So I appreciate your story, and I was going to ask you what drove you to run this company and how two individuals in the same family, you didn't have the same path as your brother, but you probably had similar upbringing. Are you exploring all this, and can DMT open that up? Absolutely. I mean, as much as I had a different outcome than my brother, you know, we did suffer from some of the similar difficulties growing up, right? Like the same household that built my brother essentially was the backdrop that I sort of came about in. So yeah, actually a part of my story is that I did really some super intensive trauma therapies about nine or 10 years ago at this point, I'm getting old, but over a lifetime, I think all of us, like, you know, whether we get to a point of having a very acutely dangerous substance disorder problem, over time, we do aggregate trauma right? We aggregate traumas, difficulties, blockages, and things like that. Nine or 10 years ago, in witnessing some of the stuff that was taking place in my brother's life, as well as my own personal difficulties, right? I'm no perfect model citizen or an angel. In experiencing a lot of that stuff, I took the approach of, you know, being very consciously directed at healing myself. But even then, as I was doing trauma therapies, there were certain things that I just couldn't unearth and I wasn't able to really access or work on. And I actually found myself in trauma response for the better part of about two years where as I tried to dive deeper into my therapy, I was simply unable and I actually found myself in a pretty acute fight or flight response for the better part of two years. And part of what pulled me out of that was actually psychedelics. DMT at the time was offered to me by a friend and I said, hey, what have I got to lose? And so I took part and like you had a really transformational experience. I was able to look at relationships in my life with my father, with my brother, a lot of the things that comprise how we feel about ourselves and our life that maybe go unexplored for a while. I was able to look at what it meant to be a man, what it meant to be a son, what it meant to be a brother. And I was able to recall memories that things that I'd heard but forgotten about. During that experience, I was actually able to remember that a sibling of my father had committed suicide at some point. And in accessing that memory, I was able to get some insight into what made my father the way he is. And I was able to have compassion. And in having compassion for him, I was able to have compassion for myself. And it was weird because it was a non-linear narrative, but upon the delivery of a specific memory, a key unlocked a lock that had been really shackling me for a long time. And it's hard to put into words, but these visions and things that we have are products of the things that we're unwilling to think about that under the influence of these molecules sometimes become unlocked for us in a really highly beneficial way. And so that was my insight and pairing that understanding the power and the potential of these things to really create these transformational experiences in me upon losing my brother like there's a ton of frustration and there's like a fire inside me that said hey my brother's one of millions that suffer from these types of things and the options that they're getting right now just are so woefully inadequate that i made it my mission to first do some discovery and validate hey if we want to help people like my brother what are the molecules to use and how do we actually take it out of the world of mysticism and put it in a way that this could become widely available to people. And, you know, to our benefit, even though this is a cool and radical space to do research and discovery in, ultimately there is a very well-oiled machine that is the regulatory model that can prove these things out in a way that ultimately delivers highly beneficial products to end consumers so that they can have a chance of transforming their lives. How fast and how expansive is this process? And if you don't mind, let's delve into what you're going to be doing in the Netherlands. The process is sometimes misconstrued 
reviewed, uh, the sort of drug development timeline often gets quoted as being a 10 year long struggle. We don't find that that's the case in this instance. Ultimately, there is a lot of research already conducted with DMT so that there is already a basic understanding of its use in humans. So we believe from a very optimistic perspective that if all goes well from a regulatory and clinical trials perspective, that we could have potentially a product to market within the four to five year time frame. You know, that's quite optimistic, but from a societal perspective, there seems to be a call for this, right? There's a psilocybin and MDMA and ketamine all in the process of approvals. And we're so excited and encouraged by the regulators looking at this objectively. We don't need them to look at it overly optimistically because ultimately their purview is with the intent of creating something that is safe for end consumers. And using that lens of objectivity and safety, already we're seeing molecules that were previously highly criminalized and proposed as having no therapeutic use being graduated through the chain of approval. So as a bellwether, we exist in a really great time. And yeah, with regard to the clinical trial timeline, we've signed an engagement with a group in the Netherlands called the Center for Human Drug Research, massively accomplished contract research organization. And come Q4 of this year, we're going to be conducting clinical trials with them to test out the safety of DMT in humans. So we have a clinical trial outlined that is for the continuous infusion of DMT over time. So delivering DMT intravenously over a set period of time to determine the safety as well as a baseline measure of efficacy in people that smoke. So that's what we have planned. Of course, we have to establish a baseline of safety because that is the major box that needs to be ticked. These things have to be safe and effective. And so from that safety study, we intend to explore efficacy in a variety of other substance use disorder indications, but that's what we have planned a clinical trial in Q4 of this year. What are the dangers, if any? Fair question. There's been a lot of optimism about psychedelics, and for the most part, we understand them to be very safe, relatively safe at least. But yeah, there's a lot that we don't yet know. Part of the clinical trial design is to ask those questions and ensure that the appropriate exclusion criteria are included and the appropriate inclusion criteria included so that if there is any opportunity for a negative adverse reaction, we presuppose that and make sure that no one is at risk of having a negative adverse reaction. But to that end, yeah, there isn't a huge wealth of evidence already being compiled. And so some of our recent acquisitions and partnerships are directly targeted at getting better understanding of how we can better characterize what goes into making a psychedelic treatment safe. So uh, we recently made an acquisition in the genetics space. We acquired a company called Halogen. What they're creating is a genetic biomarker test kit that will give some indicators based on genetics about propensity for specific psychiatric conditions, negative adverse reactions or related to schizophrenia and psychosis, as well as biomarkers that will dictate specific reactions to psychedelic tryptamine as well as ketamine. And so we're trying to establish that database of understanding how all these multiple variables contribute to a negative to a psychedelic therapy. So we're trying to understand from a genetics perspective if there is a signal that will dictate who is more likely to have a negative adverse reaction and who is more likely to have a positive reaction. So using that, we ultimately want to develop tools that physicians could employ prior to any psychedelic being administered so that they can say with an evolving level of certainty that, hey, based on your genetics, we don't think it's appropriate that you receive a psychedelic tryptamine for your depression, but rather 
understanding that risk exists there, maybe it's better to direct you to a ketamine treatment. Ultimately, these conversations about what makes certain molecules appropriate need to be had. So we're trying to lead the conversation there and understand from multiple perspectives what the right course of treatment is for treating a person with a mental health disorder. Well, you're moving from psychotherapy and psychology straight into medicine to where you've got two issues. You've got to train or shall I say, provide educational tools for physicians to learn about treatment in this regard. And you have to also entice them to be interested in employing this technology, which essentially could do away with a lot of chemically fabricated substances that have not been successful in treating those afflicted with addiction. And that thing about enticing, getting physicians interested in utilizing these products, I think a way that we can get them more primed to use these things is to educate, but also lower any risk profile on their end. As a physician, I think their ultimate Hippocratic oath duty of care is to their patient. And so in prescribing these massively powerful medicines, any measure that we can create and provide to a physician so that before they suggest a course of treatment, they will have a increasing degree of certainty, an idea of, hey, is what I'm going to prescribe safe for this specific individual? Beyond the genetics, we are also looking at technology in the world of brain imaging to give physicians additional tools to match brain types with appropriate courses of treatment. So we're really excited about that because we all individually from a genetics perspective, as well as a sort of brain architecture, brain imaging perspective, have a lot of variants, right? So we're really excited to be partnering with Divergence Neurotech and exploring how better to characterize patients prior to receiving any psychedelic treatment so that physicians could better understand the individual variability of each patient and based off of those genetics as well as brain imaging readings dictate a course of treatment that is best suited to that individual. Let's talk about money now. This program mm-hmm. is focused on increasing opportunities for those that are looking to enhance their portfolio, specifically your publicly traded company, and you have a fiduciary duty to your shareholders to increase shareholder awareness and build that shareholder base. So let's explain how this translates into money as a biotech company. What are you looking for in five years? Are you a takeout candidate? Do you want to stay with it indefinitely? Are you going to look to big pharma to do something with you in the future? And let's talk about the psychedelic ETF fund at the end of this. The space is evolving. A lot of these companies are in their infancy, as are we. That being said, like you said, we have a fiduciary duty to our shareholders. We are open to any and all future opportunities. Right now, Big Pharma is largely staying out of this discussion. They have some, I guess, key things within the world of ketamine. But the reality is that as we progress in our clinical trials timelines and de-risk with each completion of trial, we have a ton of confidence that each trial will deliver on what we sort of structure it to hypothesize. With each successful completion of a clinical trial, we greatly de-risk the pipeline. As we prove out safety and then specific efficacy, we get closer and closer to having a commercial product. And so we believe that companies like ours move through that process, Big Pharma will become more interested. And so to that end, ultimately our duty of care is to our shareholders as well as the end user. And so we need to balance that in terms of gives us the highest likelihood of actually creating a product that end users who need it will be able to access. So we're open to that. And ultimately, the way that we structure our trials and the validation, whether we take this on ourselves and bring it to a full course of completion or make ourselves acquisition ready, the internal workings of how we structure the clinical trials and the data exercise are the same. 
same. Because ultimately, the regulators are the ones that have to validate that the science that you're doing is to the form factor that they require. Last month, it was announced that Entheon Biomedical will be included in the first North American psychedelic ETF. This is 2021. You couldn't say that in the 60s or 70s. So tell us what that <laughs> is and tell us how this will benefit shareholders in your company. The psychedelic ETF is we're honored to be among what we view as the industry leaders. And so it's, I guess, a portfolio of psychedelic companies that gives us additional exposure. I think there is these types of portfolios really do validate companies that comprise it. And we're happy to be included there. And we do think that you know, this gives investors additional opportunities to gain exposure to the psychedelic industry. And yeah, we think it's going to be hugely beneficial. And it is already quite a sort of validating exercise. And we're so happy to be included there. You have quite a broad advisory board and board. Tell us about some of the people that are on that board. So for the people in the know, if you look through our advisory board, I don't want to oversell it, but to my understanding, it is, in my opinion, the best and brightest in the psychedelic research space. And so, yeah, we have people representing Johns Hopkins University, Imperial College of London, as well as names like Dennis McKenna. I think it's really important to note, too, that beyond just being high name recognition people, they are very meaningfully involved in the development of the various protocols and processes that have gone into our clinical trial design. And we're super honored to have them. And I think the, the really important thing to, to note there is these people represent some of the leading research institutions in the psychedelic space. Matthew Johnson from the world of Johns Hopkins, he's the one that led the psilocybin nicotine addiction trial. Christopher Timmerman, Malin Utog, and Robin Card Harris from Imperial College of London are doing some of the most groundbreaking DMT work in the research space. And so it's very obvious in terms of their contributions. They've helped to define, you know, what molecules to use, how to deliver them, and also how to structure the therapeutics that surround the psychedelic experience. And then, of course, you have people like Dennis McKenna, who's probably the ultimate authority on DMT and ayahuasca. And they all collectively were really instrumental in dictating what the best molecule is, how best to deliver it, so that we can really help people that need to have that transformational experience with the hope of reconciling their substance use disorder issue. You're not just an R&D company. Through the acquisition of the genetics company, you're going to be able to generate revenue and show that on your books. Am I right? Absolutely, yeah. There is an opportunity with Halogen for us to have a commercially available product in the very near term. We're uh, hoping to announce that soon, but we expect a commercially available product for distribution by the end of Q1. That speaks to what we're trying to do that exists outside of just the DMT clinical trials model. There is a massive opportunity as the sector grows to provide tools for individuals to understand their personal risk profile, as well as for physicians and facilitators to add that additional element of safety. So ultimately, people that are administering these things want to ensure that the medicines that they administer have the effect that they want without having any of the negative side effects. So genetics test is a very simple tool to use and it will be commercially available soon. And additionally, with some of the other partnerships that we've engaged in, in the EG space, we're also trying to establish a toolkit that will be universally usable to any physician that ultimately needs to make that choice. When a depressed patient walks in and says, hey doctor, I'm really depressed. Everything I've tried hasn't worked and I really want to try something radical different. There will be a conversation that needs to take place when certain molecules become approved, whether the appropriate course of action is to administer ketamine, a psilocybin, or potentially DMT. And so we're trying to develop a bit of a picks and shovels approach to making sure that those people that are making those decisions have the tools that they need so that they could prescribe the best course of action for their patients. And so as much as we're focused on the clinical trials model, we are also trying to ensure that patients that exist outside of the demographic of DMT also have tools 
tools that will increase their safety and provide for us additional revenue opportunities. Is there a possibility because many of these biotech companies are R&D forever before they ever generate revenue, is there a possibility that you're going to be cash positive in the not too distant future? Yeah, we believe so. There's an opportunity for us to start generating revenue pretty quickly. And yeah, with some of the products that we're developing, we think there's a far nearer term immediate use case. We recently invested into a U.S. ketamine network called Heading Health. So they are tackling the issue of depression using the molecule that is ketamine or more appropriately esketamine. So there's a big opportunity there for us to get some clinical learnings and to develop our tools in such a way that services that already existing market. So ketamine is already approved by the FDA. So we're trying to develop some tools that could be readily deployed there and create a revenue generating opportunities for Entheon. Tell us about the share structure of the company. Uh, at present, we have about 52 million shares outstanding, I think about 56 million fully diluted. And yeah, it's all pretty tightly held. Timothy, thank you so much for joining me today on the program. I look forward to more discussions with you and your team in the future. Thank you for having me and for giving me an opportunity to explain what we do. I've been chatting with Timothy Coe, the CEO of Entheon Biomedical, trading in the U.S. as ENTBF and in Canada on the CSE as ENBI. Go to the company's website, EntheonBiomedical.com. I'm Ellis Martin. Would you like to be one of the first to see who we are following? Subscribe to our audio newsletter. It's free. EllisMartinReport.com. This is a special edition of the Ellis Martin Report. Your Electric Future, with special guest Dr. Eric Jensen, General Manager of EMX Royalty, and surprise guest, the CEO of Martin Laboratories EMG, Ellis Martin. And now, here's your guest host, Troy Duran. Interesting company to talk about today. Some good news from said company and a couple of fascinating guests. Troy Duran here with EMX Royalty Corp, the royalty generator, our topic of discussion today. You'll find them trading on the TSX, symbol EMX, and also on the New York Stock Exchange under EMX as well. Find more info on them at their website, emxroyalty.com. You will find EMX Royalty Corp. in Serbia, in Turkey, in Norway, in Finland, in North America, in Chile, Australia, Haiti, Canada, and the list goes on. Two great guests. We have Dr. Eric Jensen, General Manager of Exploration for EMX Royalty Corp. and Ellis Martin. Familiar name to anybody who's listened to this program. Let's start with Dr. Jensen. Eric, your background is in geology, correct? That's how I started, yeah. And then, you know, switched over to exploration. To be honest, I'm mainly in the transactional and commercial development side. Also a fair amount of time as a consultant for some pretty significant companies, correct? Yeah, that was how I got started in the, in the business. So, yeah, did a lot of work in, initially for some of the bigger major mining companies. Then, then we started our own exploration 15 years ago. Yeah, it's interesting that we're talking about battery metals, but your background is steeped in precious and other metals too. Yeah, I started my career uh, focused on both gold and copper, and that's the, the wheelhouse for EMX as well. We have a lot of uh, copper and gold exposure. Although we've been diversifying the last couple of years, now we see a lot more interest in battery metal projects and also another polymetallic base metal deposits. So we're, we're diversifying, but still there is a lot of gold and copper leverage. Let's not wait to uh, introduce Ellis Martin, the president and CEO of Martin Laboratories EMG. They're an exploration, development, and research corporation in the battery metals and minerals space. Most of us are more familiar with him as the uh, host of the Ellis Martin Report since 1999 helping us 
small and mid-cap public companies increase their shareholder awareness, and he's done a good job. He's grown his audience to over 5 million potential investors. Ellis, it's good to see you. Pleasure to be here and also to join Eric. Better that we talk about this fascinating partnership that you have with EMX Royalty Corp, number one, and number two, in the context of this news release, executing the option agreement for five battery metal projects in Scandinavia. Can you start by telling us a little bit about your relationship with EMX? I fell into the business of showcasing publicly traded companies in the metal space, precious metals and base metals, over 20 years ago, and I became successful at it. You know, you sort of wonder about your course in life. What does all this knowledge do? Why am I in this space? Why is it about rocks? I figured out, well, I, I must love the culture of people in the business, people like Eric and the whole crew at EMX. And I've been looking for a project to put into a, a, a public company, a public vehicle eventually that could maximize my connections, my strengths, my knowledge as a journalist over the years and, and my business acumen. And I couldn't find one. I couldn't find a project that was as amazing enough to raise money in a really risky sector. Mining is risky. And I began doing business with uh, EMX. First, I became friends with the CEO, Dave Cole, and the corporate development investor relations individual, Scott Close. We became very good friends. You know, we got to know each other. And I just had a look at their portfolio, got to really understand the company, and I felt these are people that I can trust. Then your communications background has put you in a position to help them to concisely and compellingly tell their story. That's true, but it's really all about relationships. Over over 20 years, you get to know people. Who do I want to hang out with? Who would I have over at my house? Who would I go visit? Who do I want to do business with? I met Eric and, and Dave Cole and, and Scott Close and the other team members during the course of my life as a broadcast journalist in the mining sector. And then I went to Denver to meet the team to really sit down there and meet people I didn't know. And we had dinner and they presented these amazing projects to us in a space where the timing was right. The battery metal space in Europe has been evolving for quite a long time, long before we had electric vehicles in the U.S. For instance, five or six years ago, nobody would touch an electric vehicle or even get into the space because gas is still relatively cheap. Everybody's using it. Uh, Catalytic converters are fairly clean. Eric being a contrarian, they picked up these nickel properties when nobody else would touch them years ago, knowing that they had the patience and they had the money to wait. Eric, now is a good time to segue to your expertise. Give us some specific metals that fit under this umbrella term of battery metals. Yeah, the ones that we really like are the things that are components that will be used in the electrification of automotive fleets. So you're looking at things like nickel, cobalt, PGEs also are going to play a big role in this, as we know. Lithium is another one. We haven't made that a focus of our programs, but the nice thing about the types of nickel projects that we're looking at in Fennoscandia, we, you know, EMX has been exploring up there for a long time. We're one of the biggest in the Nordic countries, certainly the biggest in Norway, second biggest in Sweden, and we work in Finland. But in that part of the world, the deposit types are well known for are these nickel sulfide deposits that are really attractive in particular for the battery manufacturers. People like that particular type of a mineral product, as opposed to nickel laterites, these oxide deposits, which can cause some serious environmental concerns and overhangs there. So uh, we believed that the market would pay a premium at some point, at some stage for the nickel sulfide concentrate products. And I think we're seeing that come to fruition. And the nice thing about these deposits, though, one thing about these magmatic nickel sulfide deposits is that they typically include a lot of copper, cobalt, 
PGEs, and also sometimes they're enriched in precious metals, uh, gold, for example. So they can have a, a whole battery, pardon my pun, of different uh, elements that accompany the, the nickel sulfide mineralization. So we really like that commodity type exposure. We bullish, as we talked about earlier, nickel and gold and copper, and those are oftentimes present as a byproduct of these systems as well. But yeah, the cobalt, PGEs, and nickel, good combination. So is it accurate to say that because you were so early in anticipating demand for these battery minerals, that when the, the demand increases exponentially, that you'd be in a really good position? Yeah, if you look at yeah, this is something, you can see what was going to happen in the electrification of vehicle fleets. We looked for several years at the nickel supply and demand projections, and not just the overall supply. What we were looking at was the ability of mines that produce nickel to replace their reserves. And so if you look at reserve and what we call resource conversion in this sector, where you convert resources into reserves in these mines, we saw that there was going to be a shortfall in nickel that was very obvious. If you look at that side of the business, how nickel is actually produced and how exploration products turn into mines. We saw that there was going to be an issue with nickel in the intermediate longer term. And so we thought that was a really good bet. This was several years ago, we started looking at this. And at the same time, the countries like Norway were going to, were going to require mandate the conversion of their, their vehicle fleets to these electric vehicles, EVs. The European Union was solidly buying into this, uh, and you can see the trend developing over the past few years. And so the, the thing I tell the, the listeners is look at the five-year nickel spot price chart. If you go back to 2016 and 2017, 2016, the price of nickel was under $4 per pound. No one cared about that commodity, even though these signs were clear in terms of what the future projections would be. So 2017, we made nickel the focus of our exploration programs. We started gathering up old nickel projects that other companies had discarded during the price downturn, you know, 2014, 2015, 2016. These things came available. We grabbed them. So at that stage, it was certainly a contrarian play. And I remember our board of directors asking me, what, are you why, crazy? why are you focusing <laughs> on these things? No one wants yeah. this. And what, we knew that in two or three years, this was going to be the case. And so, and that market has played out to our expectations. COVID did slow things down a little bit last year, I'd say. They offset some demand. But I think we've seen the current resurgence in, in the commodities pricing is pretty clear. Especially for this news release when you're uh, optioning into these five properties. That's pretty exciting news to start the year off with for you. Yeah, yeah, that, that, was, a, that was a nice uh, news release. Ellis came to Denver. We sat down. He's an enthusiast for this particular part of the market, the, the battery metal space. And with his connections in the industry, we expect we can build a nice vehicle here to advance these assets. And I'm excited about these because the five assets that we initially put into this vehicle and one thing I want to make clear to the people who will be involved in this as we go forward, that EMX has a huge stable of opportunities globally. This is what we do. We provide exploration uh, projects and new opportunities to the exploration of the mining industry in the sector. We keep a royalty on those projects and we work with our partners to see those things advance. That's our business model. But say like if something doesn't work out on one of our products we put into this new vehicle, then we'll replace that with something else. We have a whole other, we're always generating new opportunities. We can repopulate portfolios. We can make a conveyor belt or a pipeline of, of opportunities as these products advance. So essentially what Eric said, and correct me if I'm wrong, is if one of these properties for some reason doesn't work out, he said we would vent in something else. So there yeah. really is less risk than usual for the investor. Nothing's guaranteed, but uh, their business model is excellent. And they provide a level of comfort for companies like ours, Mart Laboratories, EMG, to get involved and do business with them because it is very risky. You don't know what you're going to get until you drill. Uh, what's the time? for you. You know, when did you why did you decide to step into the battery metal space specifically with Martin Labs EMG? It's sort of intuitive, Troy, and it's logical at the same time, I'd like to think. Taking a look at the entire metal space, what does the world need right now? 
You know, gold is very speculative. We like it. I have it. I own it. I own physical gold. I have the stocks. Certainly, it's going to go up in value, but you can't eat it. You can't make it into anything you're going to use on a regular basis for the most part. I believe in clean air. I've believed in clean air my entire life. Yeah, I lived just outside of New York City because when I go to New York, I couldn't breathe. I'd get sick. I'd always get a cold. The air's a lot cleaner now. So for me, it's about providing opportunity, not just for myself and for the company, but for the public and being involved in in something where the time is right and it's exactly now. And I looked at the infrastructure too, and I was able to do that through the eyes of the EMX lens because the infrastructure in the world is the best in Finoscandia, which is Finland, Norway, and Sweden. They have the best roads. They have the best transportation. They have the best communication system. Most people speak English. You can get things done. Permitting is easier. So logically, it made sense with any sort of metals project to do business there. The mandate they've had for clean tech and, and batteries and electric vehicles has been going on for a long time. And that's why my company is based in Europe, because we're going to engage locally. I'm not Swedish, but the EMX team is full of people who are Swedish. They're Norwegian. They're involved. They're on the ground there. They, they know the landscape. Some of the investors we're going to be turning to, many of them are in Sweden. This is a local culture that we're going to immerse ourselves in. And we're a UK company and it's a banking center. So London's sort of a banking center for the world. It's tied into the Middle East. It's tied into New York. It's, it's, it really controls quite a bit. So we can raise money there in England. We can raise money there in Scandinavia for part of the culture there. And then we can backdoor it all back into North America here, where we have this political mandate now. The Democrats pretty much control all three branches. So whether you like it or not, we'll all be driving electric cars soon. And that's why I'm in this space. It just seems logical. We all have to make a living. That would answer the next question that I had, and that was why London. And it makes sense that you would uh, form a company in a uh, area that is more supportive of the initiatives that you're taking. Well, look, Americans are going to come on board, just not today. It's going to take a while. They're already on board in Europe. Am I right, Eric? Yeah, people here, there's a lot of consciousness about environmental impacts and footprints that individuals have. So we're seeing a, the conversion, I think, especially in the matter of thinking has taken place in Europe already. Sure, and it makes sense that you would find yourself in a place that is supportive of the space that you are occupying in uh, bringing these metals to market. We're speaking with Dr. Eric Jensen and Ellis Martin with EMX Royalty Corp, the royalty generator. You can find them trading on the TSX at EMX. Also on the New York Stock Exchange, symbol EMX. And I'd like to talk to you, Eric, about the royalty generator model that you employ with EMX. Yeah, we really like the royalty space because we've, you know, through our careers, we've watched as people, individuals and companies that have held royalties have done very well. And they're some of the best performing companies in the, in the mining sector for the past a couple of decades. That's pretty clear when you look at uh, some of our the, the larger peers in our sector, such as the, the Royal Golds, the Franco Nevadas, companies like that. And so, yeah, we'd like to emulate those. But as you know, buying a royalty on a market, especially a producing royalty or a near-term producing royalty, is extremely expensive. You know, the, that's a very competitive business to be in trying to acquire things at that stage. And we're seeing a lot of companies uh, grossly overpay for some of those assets. EMX has a different approach. We organically generate uh, most of the royalty assets in our portfolio, meaning we do the fine work on a project. We find a partner for that project. We work with that partner in a close collaboration to advance the project, contributing our technical acumen in country 
in, in region now, knowledge base. And then uh, we retain a royalty. And so, for example, we've got a, a big project in Turkey that is in development, that development work on this project. It's a Bledzing Silver uh, royalty that's going to pay really nicely in the coming years. It's been a while. It was over 10 years ago we acquired that project, but that's the timeline for mining. And so companies that build organic royalty portfolios, a lot of groups are starting to say that they're doing this. There's a lot of new companies that are stepping into this side of the business too. But EMX has been doing this for 15 to 20 years. So the huge advantage that we have, as much as the portfolio has been built in previous years, and now those products are moving along the pipeline, some of these are coming into production now. And so we've got this massive lead time advantage in operating in this particular space. Effectively created this space. We're the only company that does this at the global scale. And that may change in future years, but I'd say that the new fledgling companies that are trying to take on the organic royalty generation model, uh, they got a long way to go before they'll start to see those things uh, pay out. We've already got a pipeline established that that's already at that stage. You know, it's really interesting for a person looking in from the outside to view EMX. You have on the one hand, a very stable company with a very large portfolio and good capitalization with this innovative royalty generator business model, in addition to all of this forethought and planning and strategic investment, you have the ability to move very, very quickly. So you have this very stable company, but still very agile. That's spot on. We've grown tremendously as a company. I call it the crescendo of value creation. But again, there's something that requires quite a bit of lead time to, to develop. But once that flywheel is not operating as it is for EMX, yeah, your value creation mechanism is pretty clear. We also call it the get rich slow scheme. And I can say this, look at our stock chart over the past five to 10 years, it works. Along the way, you know, we built up such, you know, we have a substantial treasury now. And we have a lot of good income streams from various sources in the company, and we can deploy that capital very clever fashions. We're not too big where we can't make decisions. We're very nimble. I get a call in the morning, like a couple of weeks ago, I had a call from one of our geologists who said, hey, I just noticed that some mineral rights have been dropped in a key district in one of the Nordic countries. And I said, get on it right now. That night, we filed mining claim applications. So it was that quick. Very few companies have a, an ability to react to opportunity like that, but that's a key part of what we do. I hate getting beat, but we're as fast as any group out there. We'll say that. Great conversation we're having with uh, Eric uh, Jensen and Ellis Martin. And thank you very much for all of your insight, Eric, into this business model and the ability of EMX, the royalty generator to uh, to meet the investors' needs. Really interested to uh, circle back and talk to you, Ellis, about your company, Martin Labs EMG. And I would love to hear the story behind this because I know that there's a family history that uh, goes into the story of Martin Labs EMG. Also an implication that there is research in the name Martin Laboratories. Are you going to be doing research? And if so, in what areas? Well, I should explain that there's some family history with the name Martin Laboratories. My grandfather, Harry Martin, in the mid-40s, had a company called Martin Laboratories, and they developed a product called the Permanent Wave Solution and sold it to Gillette and, and Tony back in 1944. And no, that <laughs> that wealth didn't really trickle down, but I, I know the DNA did. So it's uh, not without some you know sense of satisfaction here that I'm using that name again, but it has, it has real value in that I think we're all futurists here, aren't we? And the battery technology is always, always changing. I was at a conference about four years ago in Newport Beach Battery Metals Conference put on by Benchmark Minerals. You know, even at that time, battery metals, you know, we're active. Everybody was really talking about lithium at that time, for the most part, and cobalt, which is politically risky. And I was listening to, I believe it was the president of BASF, and some of the car makers were there, and he was talking about mitigating the use of cobalt in batteries with nickel at that time, four years ago. 
when there was no real value in the, in the metal itself and certainly not in the stocks and not in the companies that were involved in the space. And I, I really sort of hung on to that. This chemistry, battery chemistry is going to be evolving and changing over time. And if, if we're not involved in that somehow, and then again with battery storage, which is prohibitive for most people, you can generate electricity in the U.S. I live in California in the Southwest. You know, we have so much sunshine, it's ridiculous. So storage is a big thing, but it's expensive. So if we can be involved in developing storage technology and and making it affordable for everyone, not that there aren't people doing it right now, I just wanted that to be a strong component. And again, in Europe, where they have been working on this forever and ever and ever. I just wanted to be involved in that space. So we are going to assemble a team in Europe and then hopefully in North America of scientists, a think tank, if you will, that will constantly be involved in developing technology. So yes, we are going to be a full-on laboratory. We don't have to build a laboratory necessarily, not that we won't. They're available in the universities there in Stockholm, Let me just say that there's another reason why we're in Europe, why we're in Scandinavia. The battery makers, the car manufacturers, companies like Nordvolt are right there in Sweden. Tesla's there in Germany. We'll approach Tesla in Europe, not here. We'll start over there where it's old news already. You know, one of the things that's really critically lacking in the mining sector in general is vertical integration. I think a lot of people are suddenly looking at this and the battery metal side specifically as an opportunity to accomplish that. You know, a lot of times mines are producing products completely independent of of the end users. And there's a real opportunity to vertically integrate here on the battery metal side of things to produce a product that gets fed right directly into the end users, as Ellis was alluding to some of these, these companies that are quite active in Europe. The car manufacturers should be working with exploration groups like ours to secure the long-term feeds for their products that they're, they're creating for the next decades. So yeah, Ellis, this kind of seems like a natural opportunity for Martin Laboratories EMG to uh, to step in, not only to partner with these companies, but to offer some vertical integration of your own, correct? Well, Troy, that's a very astute observation, and that's exactly what we're going to do. And that's one of the reasons Again, we're based in Europe. Vertical integration is really key. We want to develop relationships with offtake partners. And for those that are generalists out there that are new to the mining sector, an offtake partner is a company, let's say a battery metal company or an automaker, that the, the minerals will go to, that the nickel will go to, that the cobalt will go to, that all these metals will go to, which is what we're going to do. We're going to drill, we're going to build it, and we're going to sell what we produce to these companies. So if they're involved potentially as an investor, early stages, then they've almost guaranteed themselves a source which they generally really need right now, or shall I say desperately need. If you remember, Elon Musk tweeted out a couple of months ago that uh, that they need nickel. Well, we're here. We just have to prove the resource. And we are going to approach these entities at the earliest possible date to get them involved as potential equity partners. So they can say they're vertically integrated. So they can say, along with us, that they're mining nickel, they're mining copper, they're mining cobalt, they're mining PGEs. What an interesting topic and good time to be talking about it too. It does seem like the time is ripe for uh, battery minerals exploration. EMX Royalty Corp posed for uh, taking advantage of this uh, opportunity and a great partnership between EMX Royalty Corp and Martin Laboratories EMG with Dr. Eric Jensen and Ellis Martin. You'll find EMX Royalty Corp on the TSX Venture Exchange at EMX, also on the New York Stock Exchange at EMX. You can always find more information at their website, EMX. Royalty.com. Ellis and Eric, it was fantastic talking to you today. Yeah, thank you, Troy. Thanks for the opportunity. Thank you very much, Troy. It's always good to chat with you and you as well, Eric. 
This has been a special edition of the Ellis Martin Report. Join us online at ellis.gold. I'm Ellis Martin. Join me for a conversation with Tim Termunde, the CEO and President of Tyka Gold Corporation, trading as TGC on the Canadian Stock Exchange and TGGDF on the OTC in the U.S. Tyka Gold Corp. is a mineral exploration company focusing on gold in eastern Saskatchewan, Canada. The company's flagship project is the Fisher property, located adjacent to SSR Mining CB Gold Operation property and approximately 1.5 kilometers from the Santoy Mine itself. The Fisher property is bisected by the Santoy Shear Zone along its entire length, approximately 18 kilometers, and the nearby Santoy Mine is currently producing high-grade gold from the structure. Tyga Gold has joint ventured the Fisher property with SSR Mining, where they are undertaking significant exploration, including drilling with the intent of locating gold deposits for development and potential reserves. Tim, welcome back to the program. Nice to talk with you today. Great to be here again, Alice. Great news. Your partner, SSR Mining, has identified consistent, continuous, high-grade gold mineralization at the Mac North Zone of your Fisher project in Saskatchewan, Canada. Yeah, it's pretty big news, actually. It's the second time in two months Tyga has put out a fairly significant news release, kind of a milestone event. First one a month ago was when we announced the formation of the joint venture with SSR Mining. And with that, we received another cash payment of $3 million of balloon payments. So that was a big event for us, but almost equally as important or perhaps more important, we've received confirmation in this last report from SSR. They've established a predictable mineralized zone at one of the occurrence areas on the Fisher property. It's called the Mac North area. And they've now found that they are now able to predict where the zone is. And now it's a function of defining it. So this was a long time coming. They've spent well over $12 million so far exploring the Fisher property along the sand toy shear. The confirmation that they've now got a zone that they can predict where the holes are going to hit mineralization, they can roughly predict grade and dimension. So now it's going to the point where resource definition is the next goal of this area. So there's also a couple areas that are sort of graduating to that stage. We hope there are a couple other discoveries made last year at the Able Lake and Yin area that haven't had the scrutiny yet that Mac North has, but we're hopeful that these will turn into someday inferred resources, maybe measured and indicated resources, maybe a order deposits. That's yet to be seen. They're certainly on the right track. They will be starting drilling or we will be starting drilling now that we're part of this joint venture here in March. At some point, we'll be starting on the Mac North Zone. Right now, the camp is being upgraded to not only handle a larger crew, but to sort of be COVID-proofed so that they can continue on through the COVID pandemic, which they have been doing over the last six months or so up there. It's big news for us. And we're told that there's a good chance that the project will swell to three drills by mid-summer. So again, in the future, we hope this comes together. But yeah, we're very, very encouraged by what we've seen so far. And it is certainly a milestone for us to get to that point. I need to share with our audience that some of the results that you have shown are 13.74 grams per ton over 2.29 meters and 55.5 grams per ton over 0.53 meters with seven holes of visible gold reported. Did you anticipate these kinds of results or did they exceed your expectations? Uh, Frankly, no. As an explorationist, we always dream about stuff like that, but it's, it's it's pretty rare that it actually comes in in real life. In the last few years, they've drilled 87 holes on the property, roughly 
40,000 feet of drilling. And of those holes, 21 holes reported significant mineralization. That is a grammar better, somewhere up to the numbers that you mentioned there. Seven holes reported actual visible gold, which is very rare. And so it's been fantastic. We've been happy to see the success that the SSR team has made there. And the best part up until a month ago is this was all a free ride for us because SSR was spending their money. We didn't have to fund any of this work. So we were basically on for a free ride. As I mentioned, they spent $12 million in exploration so far and actually paid Taiga and predecessor Eagle Plains $3.8 million in cash. So we've done very, very well off the deal. But also it's important to remember that Taiga has a number of projects outside of the JV. We've got five other projects. A couple of them have partners. One of them is actually being drilled right now, our Leland property. There's a drill turning as we speak. Again, that's funded by SKRR Exploration. We also plan on drilling our ORCID project here starting in about two weeks. In early March, we will be having a drill turning on that for roughly a month or so. It's going to be a big program, about a million dollar program. And the ORCID project is still 100% owned by Taiga. So we're taking all the risk on this one. We also hope to reap the rewards. The geology of the ORCID project is very, very similar to the geology of the Fisher. In fact, it covers the same Taberner fault structure that the Fisher property and the CB Gold operation straddle as well. And that Taberner fault is an extremely important regional structure that goes all the way down into the Dakotas in the United States. And there is an argument that it's structurally linked to the Homestake deposit, which is a huge, huge gold deposit produced over 43 million ounces. So that's the dream target for Fisher, for the Orchid project, for the Chico project that we have too, that also has the Taberner structure in it. So we're very, very encouraged by what we see to date. We're very excited about what the future holds for us too. That's a pretty interesting structure, the Homestake structure, all the way from Saskatchewan, I guess, down to the Dakotas and Wyoming. We just don't know the extent of that, do we? No, not really. And for the most part in Saskatchewan, it's under hayfields for hundreds of kilometers. It kind of comes out again in northern Saskatchewan in the area of the Orchid and Chico. That's where it kind of pops out from undercover again. So SSR has proven with their sand toy deposit, with the CB deposit, they're proven that that's a very important structure, a very productive structure. It's actually splays off the taberner that seemed to have the juice. And we've got no shortage of those on the Fisher property, on the Orchid property, and on the Leland property. It's important to reestablish that the geology is right on all of our projects up there. SSR proved that mineralization isn't just restricted to the CB mine property. When we first staked there, a few people said, oh, you know, you guys are wasting your time and your money. The mineralization stopped at the property line or formerly Claude Resources would have staked farther south. They had their preconceived notions of the geology of the area and they figured that there wasn't much chance of finding anything south of their property boundaries. Um, we've certainly been able to prove them wrong now. And now that we've got a mineralized zone at Mac North that we hope turns into an ore deposit, we've proven that mineralization didn't stop the property line. Easily there could be more of these Mac North zone along the Santoy Shear and on Fisher and on the other properties we hold in that area as well. In addition to the other projects we have in the area, Ellis, we also hold a two and a half percent NSR on the majority of the claims in the Fisher block there. That NSR is outside of the JV, so it's held by Taiga independently. It's a pretty lucrative NSR in itself, and also it delivers $100,000 annually as a cash payment, an advance royalty payment. So we see a lot of value held up in that as well. 
So potentially, and these are my words, not yours, you have a couple of company makers with at least two of your properties, and we'll just have to wait and see. But SSR is certainly an aggressive major mining company, and they'll get the job done one way or another. And the results up to this point look very, very nice. I've been a shareholder of the company for just over a year right now. Happy shareholder. And let's talk about the share structure and the really nice entry point right now today. It's at 15 cents US. Yeah, it's got about 80 million shares outstanding right now, about 50 to 20 million more fully diluted. So call it 100 million shares. Significantly, Eagle Plains Resources still holds 12 million shares of that. So Eagle Plains is a very large shareholder. And that was from the mechanics of the spin out. Directors and insiders own another 10 or 15%. Friends of the company, another 10 or 15%. So the stock is in good hands because most of our shareholders are long-term Eagle Plains shareholders that received their Taiga share as kind of a quasi-dividend. They are very loyal to us. They know what we've been up to the last few years. They're not in any hurry to sell. They know that patience is a big part of the game here and sit back and watch the fun. We'll do the heavy lifting on our end. Tim, it's always great to chat with you with some great news today. Thanks so much for joining me today on the program. Best of luck. Thank you very much, Ellis. Look forward to the next one. I've been speaking with Tim Termunde, the president and CEO of Tega Gold Corp, trading as TGC on the Canadian Securities Exchange and TGGDF on the OTC in the U.S. Find the company on the web at tegagold.com. That's T-A-I-G-A gold.com. I'm Ellis Martin. You may assume that Ellis Martin is a shareholder on any of the companies that sponsor the Ellis Martin Report, which means he has a vested interest potentially in them. I'm Ellis Martin. Join me for a conversation with Grant Ewing, CEO of Rock Ridge Resources, trading as R-O-C-K on the TSX Venture Exchange. And in the U.S. on the OTC is RRRLF. Rockridge Resources is a new public mineral exploration company focused on the acquisition, exploration, and development of mineral resource properties in Canada. Grant, welcome back to the program. Nice to chat with you today. Thank you, Ellis. You've intersected two and a half grams per ton over 13 meters, containing 9.6 grams per ton of gold over two meters, and you've made new gold discoveries 250 meters west of the main zone. Assays are pending for two additional holes in the Rainy Gold Project in Ontario, not far from Timmins. That's right. We've released nine of our 11 holes from our recent 3,000 meter drill program at the Rainy Gold Project, and this program was intended to evaluate the expansion potential of our main gold zone. Prior to this program, the rainy gold zone occurred over about a 250-meter strike length. And so we tested the down plunge area with this drilling as well as a long trend, a long strike. And as you mentioned, we had some nice intercepts from the program. One of the down plunge holes was the highlight assay, returning a broad section, 13 meters grading about 2.5 grams per ton. And within that, we had a higher grade intercept of roughly just under 10 grams per ton over 2 meters. And then... One of the most encouraging aspects of the program was this step-out hole 250 meters west. And there we intercepted a broad zone of mineralization, highly altered, and it looks quite similar to the rainy main zone. And this intercepted a broad zone 9 meters grading over a gram per ton. And within that, we had a little higher grade section, 2.1 grams over 4 meters. So that area is open for expansion. And 
What we'll do now is assess this project following the return of the final two holes and then plan for future activities. How's that going to roll out? Once you look at further assays or are you just going to assess the data that you have and then formulate a plan for where you're going to drill next? We'll get the balance of the assays back and do a complete assessment of the project and look at next steps at that point. We're also looking at reactivating our copper project in Saskatchewan in the near term. And there we have a significant copper resource established with great potential for new discovery. I think these days, both energy, and I'm including copper as a metal in that arena, energy and gold at the same time can do well. Yeah, I agree. Gold's been trading at a very nice level in recent months, and copper has also shown some real nice strength over the last several months here. We're trading at levels we haven't seen in well over five years, so we're happy to have a great project, copper-dominated, and a high-quality gold asset. How are you capitalized for funding going forward in 2021 with respect to the projects that you are going to be continuing to explore? The Rainy project was fully funded. That project was completed for about $600,000 roughly, so it was a very cost-effective drill program. The next step for our copper asset will require geophysical surveys followed by diamond drilling of three very high quality target areas and we'll consider financing alternatives for that program over the coming weeks here. And when are we going to see the additional assays for the Rainy Gold project? Not certain on that yet. Many companies are in a similar position to Rockridge. Assays have been very slow to turn around from labs so we'd anticipate them in the coming weeks here but not certain on the timing. Let's talk about the share structure of the company for those that are learning about your story for the very first time. So about 50 million shares outstanding, so a nice tight capital structure. Our market capitalization today is in around that $7 million range, Canadian. So very cheap in our minds. We think we present some very good potential for investors here. We've got two high quality projects, a very strong team, and some aggressive plans for 2021 and beyond. Fantastic. And you do trade here in the U.S. It's really easy to purchase stock if that is your choice. It's up to the choice of the listener, of course. Easy to do on E-Trade like I've done. Yes, correct. We've got an OTC QB listing in the U.S. and and a Frankfurt listing as well. Grant, it's always great to catch up with you. I look forward to more information when you have it. Thanks so much for joining me today on the program. Yeah, thank you, Allison. Great chatting with you today. I've been speaking with Grant Ewing, CEO of Rock Ridge Resources, trading as ROCK on the TSX Venture Exchange and in the U.S. on the OTC as RRRLF. For more information on Rock Ridge Resources, go to the company's website, rockridgeresourcesltd.com. I'm Ellis Martin. Subscribe to the Ellis Martin Newsletter. It's free. Go to ellismartinreport.com and fill out the quick and easy pop-up form. Join us next time for more opportunities to discover on the Ellis Martin Report. Meanwhile, subscribe to the Ellis Martin Report. It's easy and it's free. Visit ellismartinreport.com.